You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let us pray. Gracious Father, thank you for today, um, for your mercies, uh, your grace renewed each morning. Um, uh, Lord, we do not deserve it. Uh, You know us full well. Such knowledge is too wonderful for us, and yet you love us anyway. Um, Let that grace fill us, Lord, uh, to a place that we overflow with love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Hey, Victor. Um, Well, as we were just chit-chatting on the way, uh, as we were waiting, this is a one-off class, the Penitential Psalms. There are seven of them. Um, uh, six, thirty. See if I can remember them all. Six, thirty-two, thirty-eight, fifty-one, one hundred two, one thirty, and one forty-three. Um, now they weren't written as the penitential psalms, but out of the hundred and fifty psalms, um, some tradition just kind of pulled these seven out. Um, uh, have a strong association with the Lent, which was kind of the reason I think kind of drew this way, and also something else I read by someone named John Pless. Um, kind of put this in front of me. Uh, with a strong association to Lent, and less so, I don't want to go here because I don't have time, uh, some association with the seven deadly sins, which is also in the, uh, uh, in the Christian tradition, um, really no strong connection there, really it was convenience of seven and seven and kind of finding the way. Whenever I say the seven deadly sins, I think of Frank Limehouse and, and agree with him 100%. It's like, what sin isn't deadly? Once um, it doesn't separate you from God. Um, and so we're not going there, uh, but just the Psalms, which I love the description of the Psalms as the little Bible. Um, uh, several people throughout history have referred to Psalms as the little Bible, and it's long been recognized um, since long before uh, Christ, in fact, of the special place that the Psalter has for us with the wide range of emotions, its universality. Of, uh, of experience from the highest heights to the lowest depths, and then finding places for a few of them to describe lament, to crying out to God in, uh, in what seems his absence or our failure or a suffering which has direct consequence to something that we did or to the suffering which seems arbitrary and uh, uh, inconsequential, almost something like Job, where for whatever reason we wake up and suddenly we find ourselves heavily beneath the hand of God, or at least the, uh, the weight of the world which groans is in the pains of childbirth. So the, the penitential psalms, you can hear the word penitential, pena is the Latin root, um, we get the word penalty from that, and repentance obviously is a part of that. Um, one thing I want to go back today, hopefully by the end, is uh, 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 massage some, some words that are sometimes associated with, with repentance, oftentimes that are wrongly associated with repentance. Um, we'll, we'll kind of go through some funny words like attrition and contrition and find out where those are. Contrition, um, not a funny word, right there in the middle of Psalm 51, of a contrite heart the Lord will not despise. Um, but finding attrition, contrition, penance, satisfaction, uh, uh, which had a place at one time, but now I think no longer have it after the cross. And then finally we come back to the word repentance and what that means. Um, And along the way we'll go to Florence, Italy, 
and um, Argentina, the border of Argentina and Brazil to the Iguazu Falls. Looking at the mission with Gabriel's oboe, which I know is beautiful, beautiful, beautiful piece. Talking to Victor, something he knows. Um, uh, so that's kind of where we are. That was just kind of to walk into it, just kind of get a little feel for it. Why don't we read the first one? I put these out also just kind of as an offering. I don't know if anybody wants to do this, but now you've got the seven penitential psalms. Um, again, as I mentioned, a strong association with Lent. I mean, back in the Middle Ages, uh, uh, in the uh, in the monasteries, the habit would have been to read all seven of these psalms in particular every day during Lent. And if that was too much, they always had sort of a... Uh, for those of you who couldn't be the super Christian, um, uh, do it at least on Fridays, um, all seven of them. So there'd be a strong association of of uh, of sorrow for sin, whether it's sorrow for punishment. Give you a short answer: sorrow for I'm sorry I got caught, and I'm sorry I have to face, you know, pay the piper. That's attrition, or I'm sorry for my sin. I'm actually sorry I did it. I loathe myself. Um, that's contrition, so the difference between the two. And then some confession where you're then giving an action, penance, to make satisfaction for what you did, uh, which would then allow for the possibility of repentance, a turning away from sin and back to God. That was the old order of things. Um, uh, this would be the habit that you would pray. Now, before we leave this hour, before we leave this this half hour, whatever it's going to be, I hope we realize that that structure that it has went through is not um, now that Christ has made his once perfect, full satisfaction and oblation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Uh, much of that uh, order of things has been has been obliterated. Um, uh, so I want us to, to reckon with that because I think we still we have a human heart that wants to do something to uh, to make our, make things right. Let me at least do something to show you, God, that um, that I'm really, really, really sorry. Um, and He's going to have a word back for that, I think. So so that's kind of where we are. Let's dive in um, and at least let's just kind of get a feel for the language in Psalm six. Um, uh, uh, the first of them, but also um, very kind of accessible, like most of the Psalms, not quite all of them, but most of them, there'll be a turn, and you'll feel that turn between verse 7 and 8, where the verse, uh, it's the, the, the gracious but of God, as it's sometimes called, where there's a, a sense of how things have changed, where there's the confession of God's absence from the psalmist, and then the the uh, the statement of his nearness or his, his presence or his his providence or his um, uh, his activity um, and we're going to feel that in Psalm six the Psalms uh, as I mentioned earlier and this one certainly does it gives us that bold sense of prayer of being able to come into the presence of God boldly and with confidence sometimes almost jarringly so. Um, uh, where are you, God? The psalm will ask and say, Psalm 88, which we won't read. Um, are you asleep? Um, my enemies press near. They can count on my bones. There's a uh, almost a surprising confidence, boldness, um, arrogance is maybe a word that, that, that some people hear 
when they when they slow down and hear the psalms. Uh, the psalmist, there, this is real life. Um, uh, it's the blue note of the Bible, as somebody once called it. It's it's the it's uh, uh, the full range of human emotions, most of which are uh, are cries, crying out in desperation or need. Uh, they do come forth. Others of joy, absolutely, um, a place then to deposit the goodness of the Lord as well and how he's done things, such wonderful things for me. Um, we're going to stay more in the, in, the, in the former than the latter. So here's Psalm 6. O oh Lord. Well, one more thing. Um, listen to these verbs. That's what struck me when I was, listening, when I was sitting with Psalm 6 at different points during this week. Uh, the activity of the verbs. Um, these aren't the, uh, uh, the passive verbs. These aren't the to-be verbs um, that we learned in fourth grade. Um, they're in the imperative, calling upon the Lord to act. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. And then the turn. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the, Lord ha- for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. So just to get a sense of the penitential psalms, of the songs of, of, uh, of, of dealing either with our, the consequences of our own sin, which we know. Um, I did it, and I was wrong, and I'm feeling heavily the weight of the Lord or the weight of the Lord's word on me. My bones uh, is a repeating phrase in these psalms. Um, I can feel the weight of God's hand in my bones. My bones stick to my flesh. Um, uh, and then the, uh, the confidence with which the psalmist, this is David, speaking to God, turn, uh, rebuke me not, discipline me not, be gracious to me, heal me, save me. Uh, how long? Turn, O Lord, turn, O Lord. And then the answer, um, as I mentioned, uh, as, he, as he cries out in three, but for you, O Lord, how long? And there's an answer to that. It's implicit between verses seven and eight. How long? And the answer is now. Um, the Lord works in the now. C.S. Lewis's great turn of phrase that the Lord always works in the eternal now. Um, now, this is the day. Now is the time. Uh, depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled, and they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. It's as if it's, it's no longer there. It's a, it's a vision, um, but it's also an experience. 
This is just the, the, the cadence of these psalms. So just a way of introduction. Say, say a lot more about it. A lot of that we repeat it again, but hit pause for a minute. Any, any thoughts there? Any, any interactions with, with Psalm 6? And hey, Moni and John. Are these written, are each of these, is each of these written in one city, so to speak? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, I, I don't know that. I would assume some yes, others probably not. Um, but I don't know that. I, mean, I just wonder if something happened. You know, you wrote the first part and if something happened that spurs the second. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a good question. Um, I guess a follow-up to that. Are these breaks in the song? Have they been there from the beginning, or like some other books of the Bible, the chaptering is, you know, something that's been imposed upon them? Yeah, yeah. Um, I do think some think that there has been some of that redactive um, activity over some time. Uh, this particular psalm, I don't know. Um, there are some psalms, Psalm 51, which we'll interact with some which we can identify as a particular occasion. That one's typically um, known to be the Psalm of David uh, after his uh, interactions, shall we say, with Bathsheba and Uriah and Nathan. Um, His adulterous affair with Bathsheba, uh, getting her pregnant and then getting her husband Uriah killed, so murdering Uriah, and then being confronted by the prophet Nathan. Behold, you are the man, echoing Pilate's declaration of you are the man, behold the man. Um, uh, That's one of the, I think, probably the few psalms we can say this is what he was writing about. Um, There's some others that are a little bit that occasional that we don't don't typically know. I'm always particularly drawn to these psalms. Um, uh, Let's just flip over to Psalm 38, and then we'll think about the the terms again that I mentioned earlier. while we're doing that, you just kind of look at the art. One of my favorite pieces, um, uh, very early. We'll talk about that in a little bit. This is going to be about contrition. Um, this is Adam and Eve being expelled from the garden, the expulsion from the garden, I think is what it's called. Um, but here's Psalm 38. You won't read all of it, but um, like the first, let's say, eight verses, and then we'll skip over to... Uh, Verse 15, that's where the turn is, the gracious butt of God coming out again. So, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Same first line as Psalm 6, by the way, so you can see the parallel there. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. And so the psalmist has no illusion who the actor is here. This is God's hand, which is at work. God's arrows uh, and God's hand, which is pressing down on him and feels heavy on his bones. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. This is where we get the phrase, there is no health in us, in our confession from the Psalm 38. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds sink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. 
and that continues um, for several verses. Uh, but then the turn comes in verse 15. With a lot of these psalms, you can actually look for the, the English word but, B-U-T. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is for you, it is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me, who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous, they are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. So some, some, some incredible things going on here, um, uh, which we take for granted. I take for granted. Let me speak personally. Um, and, and moments like this allow me to slow down a little bit. Um, jumping ahead, repent. We know the Greek word, a lot of us do metanoia. It just comes out with this word meta, which means large, but also turn, um, has a double entendre. And then noia is the mind or perspective, coming to your senses is a great way to put it. Um, out of, uh, say, Second Timothy, but we come to our senses and, uh, and see the wiles of the devil. Um, uh, to see things as they actually are. In, the, in this, this great work of God, where his hand is heavy upon me, and I know my sin, I know it full well, against you and you only have I sinned. In the act of that confession, the Lord, whose property is always to have mercy, whose grace is ready to save, um, is, uh, is present, living, and active, and speaks really at the same time with both of his words, his word of law, which convicts me and tells me of who I am and which drives me to Christ and his gracious provision, which then strengthens me to save, um, strengthens me as saved. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It's as if the room warmed and the light came on and his senses were restored and he's able to see with the eyes to see and hears with the eyes to hear. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It's you. You were here all along. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. And you hear then the nearness. At first, the psalm is a complaint. It's a lament. And now he starts to speak about Yahweh, about God in relationship with a sinner, the saving God in a relationship with the sinner, the sinning present progressive human. It is you. This is Thomas's exclamation. Oh, you know, my Lord and my God. Suddenly he saw. He saw who Christ was. Um, it is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me, who boast against when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous, they are mighty. Those who render me evil for good um, accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, that personal word, O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. There's such a ready nearness in the Psalms, in these Psalms, that I just love. Um, 
And here, let's go to Florence, Italy. Um, uh, did a little bit more reading. I, I, I don't know where I saw this first, and I've used this many times, but every time I use it again, I like to try to find out a little bit more. Um, Pre-Renaissance, very early Renaissance, 1425. Um, I think he was like 20 when he painted this. This is in a chapel in Florence, Italy. And uh, I think he was an apprentice and a master. I can't remember his name. Had to go out of town. <laughs> and then the apprentice took up his pet brush and he, and he painted. And, uh, uh, and very different, very different from anything else which has been going on. I don't know much about art history, but from 1420, before 1425, you wouldn't have seen this kind of realism, especially this kind of realism, not only in the human figure, but in the emotional expression. And just the, the incredible pathos which he captures with Adam and Eve and how it's contrasted. And I think the master in this, in this, uh, 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 in this chapel in Florence paints what we, would re- what we would recognize as almost like the beatific, very sort of meek and white and clean, uh, Adam and Eve before the fall, and they just look almost not real, you know? It's just like too perfect. Of course, it is Eden. Um, but now, after the fall, I mean, just the anguish. And I've always drawn to this, which is why we kind of blew it up, and see the uh, uh, Adam with his, his hands and his, uh, uh, covering his face, and Eve very crudely, ineffectively, so realistically covering her nudity uh, and just anguish of just now realizing, oh my God, what have I done? What have we done? What has happened? And then the answer is also ready on their tongue. Everything has happened. Everything has happened. There is nothing forever that will ever be the same. And they're being driven. And you can even see the activity of the angel being driven, uh, expelled from the garden. And you can see some of the sort of the, the motion away and out of the garden, which gives the force in the painting that they're being propelled uh, out and they cannot return. It's definitely futile. Um, it's definitely going out where they cannot be there. Um, this is contrition. So just put some funny words in there, and then we're going to look at a great clip from the mission um, and think about some other parts of, uh, of the Psalms. Um, uh, attrition, which is the experience of, you know, I like to pick on 14-year-old boys, but then I also like to then tell everybody, and we never get any better. <laughs> you know, 14-year-old boys, they're not sorry for what they did. They're sorry that they got caught. That's attrition. And we can blame our sons or who I was when I was 14. But that's just kind of all of us most of the time because I think we have. This is, this is sanctification, the present salvation of God in us, is we actually come to the place that we not just are sorry that we got caught and we're sorry we have to pay the penalty, but we're actually sorry that we did it. Ugh, I know my sin. And that's what they have here is contrition. Attrition is I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry I have to pay the penalty, fear of the penalty, fear of the hangman. Contrition, a contrite heart, is one that's genuinely sorry that I did it. Out of my love for God and His goodness, His mercy and grace, I actually want to do the right thing. And I struggle and I loathe myself, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? 
That's contrition. That's Paul's ejaculation of a contrite heart of, oh, myself, I loathe. I cannot stand myself. And that's caught here in, uh, in the expulsion, this masasio, um, in this expulsion of, uh, of Adam and Eve from the garden. The old way. So that's still in our heart, the distinction between attrition and contrition. Now, the old way of dealing with our sin was that, and we're still, it's still held over because I still think, I know it's funny to say, that if all of us said, okay, next week, let's all spend Monday to Friday together, and we're not going to leave this room until we come up with a new religion. We've got to figure out how we're going to order our lives together beneath God. We would come up with something like this that things are not the way they ought to be. They once were good, now they're not. And we have to figure out how we get back to the things that are good. And so we'd probably come up with something like attrition, contrition, and then you would have some form of confession, and then penance, and then satisfaction, and then uh, repentance, which is being turned back into a right relationship with God. Those parts, if you heard us say penance, so penalty, penance, acts of penance, and in a minute we're going to look at the movie The Mission, if you remember that. Great tour de force, Jeremy Irons and um, Robert De Niro, and a very young Liam Neeson. You forget that he's in there. Um, Where Robert De Niro kills his brother in a duel because the woman he loves loved his brother more. Um, And so he kills his brother. Uh, He's a slave trader. Um, so he's a, he's a nasty man. Um, uh, and then a priest comes, Jeremy Irons, early, early, early days of the Jesuits. And the Jesuits were the Marine Corps of the Roman Catholic Church at this time. And they're coming over into South America for the first time. And Jeremy Irons confronts Robert De Niro and says, you killed your brother, though you had a strange way to show it. Um, and there's this great dramatic interchange several of them throughout the film. It is really one of the best films. Um, uh, uh, will, you, will you make penance, Jeremy Iron is saying. Um, will you dare try? And Robert Jr. says, will I try? Will you dare see me fail? Is your system strong enough for failure? Um, De Niro implicitly says yes, and his penance, his act to show that he's sorry um, is to carry up the uh, accoutrement, the weapons of his former life, his armor and his weapons, all the way up to Iguazu Falls in, in the middle of South America, in, the, in Brazil and Argentina, um, uh, to return to the Indians, the Guarani, that he would, would trap and then put into the slave market. Um, and so his penance, his action, which would then satisfy the necessary uh, uh, penal requirements um, would satisfy the, uh, the penalty uh, of how bad he was. This is a hard enough thing, and so it's going to make me okay. Um, that's what we're going to look at, and we're going to say, and that's no longer the case. The cross has obliterated all of that. Um, although this is set, and there's a lot of Christian grace in the film, uh, it's showing in a certain period and in a certain system, the Jesuit system of, uh, of, uh, of contrition, penance, satisfaction, uh, I'm sorry, contrition, confession, penance, satisfaction, and then repentance. 
contrition confession no longer the needed work of penance and satisfaction because repentance has been shifted and it's a work of God. And we saw it in Psalm 6. Um, turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Um, that word turn is the root of the word repentance. To repent can either be that we turn away from sin and turn towards God, or, put it in the passive sense, we are turned from our sin and are turned towards God. Um, that's the question. And that's also the question I want us to think about as we look at the mission and go through this. Does that make sense? Um, so all this different place, I had you know, lots more. We could have done a whole series on this. But I think I'm going to sort of leave it there. Before we watch the movie, any, any thoughts here in the old system? I know I'm hitting words. Attrition, contrition, uh, confession, you know, against you and you only have I sinned. Um, I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. We call a thing what it is. And in the old system, uh, the wrong system, the human system, the fleshly system, the system that we would make up if we stayed here, except for the revelation of God that says, no, I am a graceful God who is quick to save. You don't have to show me satis- you know, penance and satisfaction. I'm not asking you to somehow right the, uh, the scales of justice. You can't. I've done that. I've done that. And now all that's left is be turned. Come unto me. God is turning us, uh, drawing us to himself. Um, That's the idea. Thoughts? So earlier, when you were saying penitence, um, the root being connected, I think you were saying it was connected to repent. Yep, yep. Yep, yep. Penance, repentant, um, repentance, penalty. All those have the same root, pena. Um, penal, um, a penal institution. Um, all those come out of the word pena. Um, P-O-E-N-A is the, the Latin root. So you put all that in your mind. Why do I say that? And you're like, oh, yeah, the penalty for sin. It's been paid. And I act like I've still got to do something. That's the human heart in conflict with itself, rather than saying, God loves me anyway. And, and really, it's jarring to say, there's nothing that I can do to make that any better. Um, it's almost interesting how repent is not the whole word repentance. It's not repentance. Yeah. yeah. It's been, you know, it's that, already that, done. that could be part of our, you know, our particular language. Yeah. But, um, I think you're right. Yep. No, our language doesn't have the right one. Um, what did Fitz say? Uh, metacardia. He wanted to make up a word, Fitzsimmons Allison did, because there wasn't a right word for it from the transliteration from the Greek into English. Uh, and so he wanted to make up a word, just kind of leave it awkward and say a metacardia. So it would be a change of heart. Uh, because none of us can change our own hearts. It has to be changed from the outside. I mean, I can't sort of cut myself open and hurriedly put a new heart in there. Um, we recognize that as of God, and that's repentance. That God gives us the new heart. Um, so let's watch a little bit of the movie. Um, two clips, each about three minutes. Um, I think I set it up. Great soundtrack. 
Great, great soundtrack. Remember the wedding. I mean, just beautiful, beautiful. You'll, if, if you don't know, I mean, I lived so much in my 90s with uh, this soundtrack from, how do you say his name? Ennio Morricone? Is, is that right? I mean, it's a Latin word. Old spaghetti westerns with Clint Eastwood, Good, Bad, and the Ugly. And then he died just like a year and a half ago, two years ago, something like that. Um, phenomenal soundtrack. It's worth, this, this movie is worth your time, and the soundtrack is worth your even more, almost more so. Um, Robert De Niro doing his penance by carrying his uh, 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 sack full of of, uh, of uh, uh, armor up the up the up the waterfalls in the uh, in the middle of the Amazon rainforest. Liam Neeson. Isn't that crazy? So that last line, one of my favorite, there's several from the movie, we're not members of a democracy, Father. We're members of an order. I'm not going to talk about that, but I love that line. That part makes me sad. 
Father, this penance thing, he's done it long enough. The other brothers think the same. And then Jeremy Iron, who's the head of the order, uh, but he doesn't think so. And until he thinks so, neither do I. There's that sense that it starts with De Niro and it ends with De Niro. He's the god of his penance right now. And that's the part that makes me sad. That's the part that makes me so grateful to the massive grace of God, that God is the author of our repentance. God is the author who says, it's enough. God is the author who can say, like, it is finished. We don't have to say that, because how much is enough, Mr. Hughes? Just a little bit more. That's going to be the perpetual answer for many, if not all of us. Just a little bit more. It can't be enough. What I did, who I am, what happened to me, what the other person, what the world is, it's got to be a little, it's got to be something else. And until he thinks it's enough, it won't be enough. That is so incredibly sad to me. It really it brings me sorrow for people who are held in that place, which is why I come to this theme so often. And the wonders of repentance, of being freed to be loved by God and then to love other people in that freedom. So this next scene... De Niro climbs the, uh, the, uh, the rest of the way up, and he is confronted by the Guarani Indians, this tribe up in the Amazon rainforest above the falls. Um, one of the warriors grabs a knife, and he runs over. High, high drama. I realize how much of this movie, too, has... It, there's not a lot of dialogue. I mean, it's so driven by the music and by the scenery. It's really great. Um, he goes, and he puts the knife... To Nero's throat. You want, is he going to kill him? He'd have every right to do it. This is the man who's enslaved, who knows how many members of the tribe, um, and, uh, you know, killed him. Uh, similar to Valjean, um, he could have died and he was given back his life. Um, he didn't, he doesn't kill him, spoiler alert, uh, but he takes the knife, he cuts the burden from De Niro's back, and he rolls the sin away into the river. A little bit like Pilgrim's Progress where it rolls into the empty empty tomb and it's never to be seen again. It comes back in the movie. Um, then maybe we're going to have a minute or two to talk about this. What's going on here in this old system of penance, um, satisfaction, and then repentance? Or is it also a parable for what I would call genuine repentance, at least Protestant repentance, which I think is genuine repentance, where God has said, it's enough. And this is a parable of the Guarani's imputed love, reckoning to De Niro something which he does not deserve, wording to De Niro something he does not deserve, and that's life itself. And it says, you're loved, you're accepted, I know what you did, I know what you are, uh, and I'm not going to repay evil for evil. I'm not going to try to right the scales. Um, uh, and so maybe we'll have a chance to talk about that a little bit. But it's a great scene, about three minutes again, um, much of which is going to be Robert De Niro crying. But that's pretty cool.
It's really a lovely scene. Um, so, I remember at the very beginning, you see several missionaries like that. They nail them to the cross and send them over the fall. Yep, yep. That's the opening scene. Um, uh, have y'all seen the movie? Y'all are in for a treat. I mean, you're in for a great treat. 1986, The Mission. Um, and you really need to watch it in a dark room where you can... Turn the, yeah, yeah, two hours, turn it up, um, great soundtrack. I'll just tell a story now. This is before the internet. I'm going to confess, this is really funny, I'm going to say this. Um, you know, the internet was, what, like 2001 when we really started to kind of dial up and all that stuff. Uh, the 90s, I really sat with this movie a lot. I don't know how I got a, I don't know how I did this even, or how, who gave it to me. It's probably a gift. It might have been you, director. Somehow on a cassette tape, I had the movie. Not just the soundtrack, but the movie. I just would ride around in my car, my Bronco 2, just listening to it. And so the dialogue just became almost second nature to me. Um, and there was such little dialogue in some ways that it was easy to do. I just would just sit with this movie as a parable of what would be, make, become very sad to me. What I said a minute ago, really, it is. It's sad. I have the privilege of sitting with people. It's like, what? what? I know the cross has paid for my sins, but, and they always want to put the but on there. I was like, but surely I got to do something. I mean, am I supposed to go to Bible study now, or do I have to do this, or, or do, I have to go, do I have to move to Africa? I mean, what do I need to do? I was like, no, you're free. You're free to read the Bible and to pray and to move to Africa, but it really is, it's maddening to people that the, the satisfaction an action aspect of trying to pay for my sins has been removed utterly and completely by the cross of Jesus Christ. He has paid for our sins and thrown them into the river, and we, like Corey Ten Boom said, and he put a sign out and says, No fishing. You can't go back and dig them up. There is nothing that we can do except in wonder, love, and praise say something like, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, O Lord, shouldst die for me? And then it looks very much like De Niro just weeping into the arms of another man for the life that he was given back. And that's a parable of, of this amazing love of God turning us away from sin and back to himself. So, so read the Psalms if you'd like. It's part of your Lent. Um, watch the mission. Uh, meditate on Masasio's uh, expulsion from the garden um, and may it be profitable um, Lord take these words in this time humbly offered and and, uh, and multiply it by your grace um, to whatever to whatever work you would have uh, wrought in us um, turn us ever and always back to you through your mercies renewed each day in Jesus name Amen You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.